Hi, everybody. Mike and Kenton here continuing the conversation. Um, we're going to do something extra special upcoming this weekend. You heard about it in church if you were here, but we want to let you know and remind you that we have a road show that we're embarking on. It's a world tour of Orange County. We are going to do, um, because there have been so many great questions, and you'll see we've got some today that have come out from the series, we wanted to do a real informal, approachable uh, Q&A because I think there, this, this conversation has really surfaced a lot of issues uh, that we could spend more time on. And we're going to be at Mission Viejo Sunday at 4 uh, in the Worship Center. And then we're going to be, um, Kent and I are going to be at uh, Mission Viejo. And then at 6 o'clock, we're going to be here at Main Campus, Child Care Provided. And where are we going to be? Do we know? Big Auditorium going to be there. That's what people know. And that's where they want to be. That's where they want to be. So we will be there. Now, this last weekend, we talked about contract versus covenant. Oh, my. Two ways of thinking and approaching God. And um, I think one of the big learnings for me was, well, a person came up after the service and said, you know, I hear about covenant and then the contract part of me says, okay, great. What do I have to do to grow into covenant thinking more? And I turn covenant thinking even into contract thinking. And I think there was just this sense that it's so pervasive, it's tough to grow out of. So how would you answer the question as you reflect on the weekend for somebody that says, okay, covenant thinking, yeah, I get it in my head, but how do I actually grow into it? So that it becomes a reality. Well, I think the idea of constantly going back to God's word and saying, God, I want to embrace this kind of love from you. We don't experience it with people. I had a young 24, 5, 6-year-old guy uh, come up and he talked about how that was such a startling service for him. He's dating and he realizes in his dating relationship, everything he's doing is a contract kind of deal with Hmm. his girlfriend. And he said, it's just what I learned from my parents. And it isn't that they're not wonderful parents. They're just wonderfully human parents. But I realize in this dating relationship, everything's negotiated and everything's mm-hmm. a deal. And everything in this relationship is, okay, I'll do this if, if you do that. And he says, I, I feel like I'm ne- negotiating in this relationship. And he said, I can't believe how foreign the idea of covenant love is in this dating relationship. And I want to do this. And I get a sense that he wants to move towards marriage. That's great. And he said, how do I do that? Which is the same question. <laughs> and for, you know, obviously he's not going to, he's going to be motivated to figure it out, figure it out because of who he's dating in this dating relationship. But the only place to figure it out is back at God's word saying, God, this is how you love me. And every day I've got to wake up saying, God, you love me and you're going to bless me. And and it isn't because I do anything, and it's not because I'm wonderful or good. It's because you're good, and I want to live in that today. And as I, I look in God's Word and I see God acting that way, I think I can start to believe it, and then I can move out and treat others as best I can in life that way. But unless I get a great picture of God and focus on God, I don't think I break that idea of contract love And so I have to think about it. I've got to look at God. I've got to enjoy that and live in it. And then I can move out in it. That's what I think. No, I think that's that's exactly right. There's a sense that there needs to be permission given for us to grow into that. It's almost like you need to be Mm -hmm. reparented at a fundamental primal level that God will never leave us or forsake us. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We all know these cliches that float around in Christian culture, but if we really embrace them, the contract thing would just look like rubbish 
uh, as uh, as a result. And so um, I think these are the kind of questions that have been stirred up that we're going to talk about more uh, in these Q&As we're going to do this weekend. As you reflect on the weekend for you, uh, were there pieces of the conversation that that you would have wished we had more time on or things you didn't get a chance to talk as much about as you would have wanted to? I think uh, afterwards, because of the person that came up, in fact, a few people came up and and all over the map, some older believers that have walked with God many years, some newer, some younger, some older, the idea of how it plays out in relationships. If I had more time, I think I'd talk about how we treat each other with contract love mm-hmm. and see it more that way and then more examples of it so that then people could move and think, oh, if I could break that or move away from that, because it's always a dead end. There's always hurt. I lose a sense of freedom. I live with fear. There's no sense of identity in who I am. There's no real worth, as we talked about, in contract love. So Mm -hmm. I I think I would have spent more time looking how we live in that in relationship, the pain it causes, and how we're always trying to earn and perform. And that seems to be where people went. That was surprising to me. But that's what you want them to. And then I think the other side is it's how in community that we learn and break that. Because if I'm in community with other people who want to love with a covenant love, want to understand God's covenant love and want to love in that, and we give people permission to say, boy, that feels like contract love to me. You know, boy, that Mm -hmm. feels Mm -hmm. like covenant love. That's going to be a helpful discussion because then it breaks my thinking and I move towards God saying, God, I want to experience your love on that basis. You just love me. Mm -hmm. And it isn't because I'm good. Right. I want to live that way every day. We wrap up um, the series this weekend and we're going to do a couple of things that are going to be Fun and, and uh, Lord willing, very powerful for our church. Share, share a little bit about that. All right. This week we're going to talk about how God gave all sorts of ritual in the Old Testament. And in that ritual, what was the reason for it? Mm-hmm. Because we often think that all ritual is bad. But actually the purpose of that ritual was so that we would experience uh, in a real personal way, we would act out in a personal way, God's gracious love for us. And then we're going to talk about the ones, the great rituals that we have in the New Testament, specifically baptism, the Lord's Supper, why that's so important and how it is a means of grace, not saving grace, but a means of grace to teach us some things, to cement some things into our life so that we experience truth at a level that we need to experience it. Then we'll actually take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, We'll celebrate baptism. We'll see pictures of it. And then at the same time, uh, we'll have an opportunity for people at the end of this to say, this is what I want. All along, we've said the only thing we've got to do to experience God's covenant love is to believe, is by Mm -hmm. faith to say, God, I really believe this is the way that you want to love me. And we'll give people an opportunity to respond who've never done it and say, God, I believe. I believe this. For the first time, I get it, and I believe. We're praying about that as a staff. Very excited about it as a church. Yeah, I would. so I would just encourage you, um, this would be a great weekend, to invite people, or if they've been in and out throughout the series, just to make sure they're there, Um, because this is the culmination of really the whole eight weeks we've spent on this conversation, that there is an important kind of ritual that we do participate in, but it all points to the grace and faith of our Lord Jesus towards us and we receive. And so we're super excited about that. Got some questions. Uh, Shockingly, I want to start with um, a question that we ended with last week, but I just wanted to add a couple of things to it. 
Um, if you remember, there was a gentleman that asked, how do I reset my expectations of God after experiencing a brutal past two years without much awareness on my part? I've spent two and a half decades building a faith in God that closely resembles the American dream. Now I've experienced a failed business, lost all my finances, have no job or prospects inside. I'm 45, year old, uh, 45 years old, still single, feel forgotten. What do I do now when I expect God, what? How do I? How do I change and reset my expectations? And you said something I thought was great. It, it that you affirm the question that that maybe we do need to reset the expectations um, because God doesn't give us what we want; He gives us what we need, and He will allow us to taste the futility of a way of a living that doesn't make sense apart from Him. But I also just wanted to add from personal experiences. Our our youngest, my wife and I have three children. Our youngest child has Down syndrome, and when we found out. Um, before he was born, we had, we had similar, similar feelings like what God, you were supposed to protect us from this. And you were told us to have a third child and now you've given us this child. And, and we had all of those kind of wrestlings and, and we had two different responses. One response came up and was very shaming, uh, when we told it to the church. One was, uh, a lady said, um, I, there are worse things than having a child with birth defects and she has two healthy children. So I, you know, didn't really respond well uh, to that <laughs> advice. Um, but there was a family in our church that that had, had uh, they walked up with tears in their eyes. They had a four and a half year old little boy who had Down syndrome. And they just said, we are so happy for you. And I wasn't able to uh, receive that at the time, but they were right. And so my counsel to you um, who feel this way is that is that could we open ourselves up that instead of tragedy, this is a story of grace and mercy that in a cross shaped world, um, perhaps coming to the end of our rope is one of the best things that could have ever happened to us. And I know that doesn't make it easy and it doesn't solve every problem. But there is a sense that we reset the expectations, not according to my circumstance, but according to his love and grace. And I just wanted to add that because it's been a powerful, powerful thing uh, for me. Um, Another question. Kenton, after listening to your uh, continuing conversation today, people are tuning into this and asking questions about this now, which I love. (laughs) I was wondering how we are called by God's word to people who claim they've made a decision to accept Jesus as their savior, but live with their significant other and justify it by saying, well, we don't want to be legalistic and just have a bunch of old time religion. So what would you say to those people? I would say what Paul says in Romans 6, sin hurts. (laughs) One of the things that we want to mistake is to think that when we say to people, you know, we don't follow God to ultimately earn his love. But what God says over and again in the Bible is this is the way of life. And if you violate it, he he loves us too much to take away the consequences. And as a result, what Paul says just beautifully is sin really hurts. And the mistake that people make when they get involved physically before marriage is they're saying there's no price to pay. And there's a huge price to pay. I'll just give you one example. And it is startling and it will make your jaw go slack. The number, you know, people get involved before they're married, uh, you know, because they say, well, I just can't control myself, you know, and I've got these urges and I've got to express them. And then sadly, they get into marriage. And as they get into marriage, you know, obviously there's times that you can't be as active, sexually active. And one of those times is when people are 
uh, when, when they're pregnant. And sadly, uh, the number one time of unfaithfulness in marriage is when a wife's pregnant. Now, that's just startling and sad. But for a couple who learns how to manage those sexual desires, I guarantee you they manage them better in marriage and there is greater trust and there's greater faithfulness. Mm -hmm. But people who say, no, I have to live by my urges and there's no pain, there's pain because you're not, one, learning how to manage those images, I mean those desires. That's just one example. I've got a lot more examples. But sin always hurts. And that's why God's saying, don't do this. It'll hurt you in the long run. And it isn't to try to hem you in. You just have to believe that God knows. Right. And legalism is not the application of God's guidance, commands, or wisdom to real life. Legalism is thinking that following those guidance, commands, and advice in real life earns you favor. So Paul is very, very clear about people who claim to follow Jesus and live in outright rebellion uh, to him. Um, that that not only does sin hurt, but it hurts the body that called the church. It hurts our witness to the community. It's a big deal, not in salvific terms, but in terms of our witness and in terms of our own, I mean, exactly what you're saying, in our own individual obedience, we can quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. Did I, you just say salvific? I did. Is that I, a word? I couldn't salvific. spell it. Salvific. Okay, yeah. All right, good. All right. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no. Okay, good. Salvific. Um, we'll see if we can work that in a couple more times. And, and I would also say you're not preaching the gospel of Jesus unless people are asking these questions. Right. In other words, you know. Because it's what Paul asked. He, yes. You know, exactly. He makes the argument, said it's all about grace, all about grace. And then he says, well, and if when I <laughs> sin, God forgives me, there's even more grace, I should sin because it's more gracious. And he goes, no, no. it doesn't work that way. And sin hurts. But that is one of the tests of whether you're preaching the true gospel, exactly. because that was the accusation against Jesus. He is he is accepting scandalous behavior. Isn't it going to just encourage the behavior all the more? All right, one last question, and we could spend a lot of time on this. Maybe we could um, hit it another time. Uh, let me see. Let me get it. Let me get it. I'm flipping. Nope. Ken, at the beginning of the service, the general topic of your prayer was leadership and voting. Why does Mariners not provide guidance on voting? I'm not suggesting that you say this is how you should vote, but rather here's who I'm voting for and how I'm voting on the propositions, and here's why I'm voting the way that I am. For me, the insight you and Mike provide is more meaningful and significant than anything I hear on Fox, MSNBC, CNN, etc., to which I would say thank you, but that bar is pretty low in terms of the <laughs> advice. So so I appreciate that. But Ken, how would you how would you articulate Uh, our response to that? I think that there are issues that are moral issues that we address and they usually aren't in propositional language and they're not usually just centered around a candidate. They're bigger issues. Mm -hmm. The big big Mm -hmm. issues of life, Mm -hmm. big issues of justice. These are weighty issues that the Bible weighs into and we take clear stands on. Um, But when it gets down into certain propositions and or uh, different candidates – It just takes the eyes off of what we're here to do. The Bible, you know, what we're here uniquely to do, preach the gospel, give people hope, uh, focus on what God talks about. And it is so – once you get into that, it seems like a black hole that I don't feel like I can fight my way out of. And there is no voter guides that aren't slanted uh, down one political um, journey. And, you know, the Bible is too broad to be – just conservative or just liberal. Those 
Those are ways of looking at life, but the Bible is so much bigger Come than on. that. Come and on. we've got to be bigger than that. Amen. And we got when I was at Rock Harbor, we got a lot of flack for not speaking specifically on uh, Prop 8, the, the gay marriage proposition. And my response very simply was the conversation the Bible has about sexuality and homosexuality and marriage cannot be reduced to a yes or no on a proposition. And I, that's what I hear you saying. There's this sense that the gospel is much bigger, truer, wider, and um, and we want people to vote. We encourage them to pray uh, for their leaders and exercise their right to vote. But the I think you've just absolutely nailed it, but it would take our, our focus off of Jesus. And, and Christianity and religion and, and politics are so intertwined in America. There's a purity to just simply saying, yep, we're active politically, but most of all, we want to be about Jesus. So blessings upon all of you and your households. Farewell.